Lord, that is our desire, Lord, that you would draw us into your presence. Father God, that we may worship you. You created us to worship you, Lord. And, and Father, I know that when we worship, we truly get a taste of what heaven's going to be like when we'll worship you forevermore. And Father, I just pray right now that you would soften our hearts and just prepare us, Father God, to receive from you from your perfect holy word that you've given us, Lord, your love letter to us. Father, I just pray that you administer to every single heart that's here. So, Father, we love you and we praise you. We truly are desperate for you. May you be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Welcome again to Calvary Santa Cruz. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're going to need one. So just raise your hand. I'll be happy to loan you a Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll get one to you. We've got plenty. All right, don't be shy. And if you need to, please feel free to take that home with you as a, a gift from us. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We continue our verse-by-verse study right through the New Testament on Sunday morning. Uh, Those of you who might be new here, I just want to say welcome. We're really glad that you're here. And here at Calvary Chapel, we just really feel like from the moment you get here, you're family. When you got Jesus in common, you got everything in common. Amen? And we're all family, and so we're just glad that you're here. So we're going to take a look this morning at at Acts chapter 7. I did want to mention one other thing, if you could be praying. Uh, I love to pray for you, and I appreciate it when you pray for me. Four weeks from today, I'll be leaving for, for India, the trip I've told many of you about. I'm going to be going with a group called Gospel for Asia. And Lord willing, I'm going to have the opportunity with another Calvary pastor from Oregon to teach about 700 pastors in India how to study and teach their Bible. And what's great about it is, is these are guys who most of them have been disowned by their families. Or they, they basically lost their lives and they became Christians. You get baptized in India, your family wants nothing to do with you. And uh, these guys have given their lives to the Lord and now they're being trained to go out and reach unreached people groups. And they don't have Christian bookstores in India and they don't have a lot of commentary sets. And they really need to be taught how to study the Bible using only the Bible. And so I would just really appreciate your prayer. I'll be over there for two weeks. And I'm just looking forward. I know they're going to minister to me way more than I minister to them. Guys who've given, basically, many, some of which will lose their lives because they're sharing the gospel. Virtually all of them will face persecution. And I'm just really praying that God would allow me just to, in a humble way, to have an opportunity to minister to them. So I would cover your prayer. I'll be leaving on October 19th. Well, take a look. We're going to begin it. We're going to look at Acts chapter 7. And I titled the message this morning, A Standing Ovation from God. You know, in the world that we live in today, the, the whole emphasis in so many people's lives is how popular we are with men. People want to be popular before men. Look at the, the, the programs that are popular today, American Idol and things like that. And they interview people and their whole focus is, I want to be famous. I want everyone to know my name. I want people to know who I am. We dress so that we'll be pleasing to others. We, we drive certain cars and the things that we say, all looking for the, the uh, pra- uh, approval and the praise of other men. Because we want people to know our name. We have such a desire for fame, I believe, that we're often awestruck by famous people. We've all done this. You see somebody famous, you go, ooh, look, they're so-and-so. And you go over and you get, their, you get somebody to sign their name on a piece of scratch paper. Never quite figured that out, but you get their autograph and you put it in your pocket so you can show somebody else that you saw someone famous, somehow maybe making you a little more famous because you saw someone famous, right? And, and we get these things where we begin to elevate men and we want to be, you know, looked at by men and we want to have people know our name and we, we want people to look at us in a favorable way. Before you know it, we're talking about, you know, I saw Michael Jordan in the airport or I got my picture taken with my favorite music group or whatever it might be. And, and, you know, the world dreams and when the world dreams, often when you talk to young people about their dreams, it usually includes fame. 
It includes being famous. I want to be a pro athlete so I can be famous and make a lot of money. I want to be a, a singer. I want to be this. I want to be that. I want to be popular at school at the very least. And we want people to look at us in a favorable way. And we're going to look at a, a, a young man this morning who was not worried about being famous with men, but just being famous with God. Just being obedient to the creator of the universe. And that's really what matters, you guys, in eternity. It's not how we appear before men. It's not a reputation before men. It's not how many people know our name. It's not how many people serve us or admire us. The Bible says the very opposite. If we want to be great in God's kingdom, that we need to learn to be the servant of all. So as we come to this point in the text, we know in the book of Acts we've seen the birth of the early church and the Lord has ascended back into heaven and now at this point He has given the Holy Spirit to them. They've begun to speak with great boldness. Their lives have been transformed from being the the, the napping apostles who are always sleeping when the Lord is praying to guys who are vocal about their faith and men of conviction. Guys who used to be tossed to and fro by every little thing that came along that were worried all the time, that were out in the storm shaking in their boots who denied the Lord when a little girl said you're one of their followers to being guys who would stand up in front of everybody and boldly proclaim the truth and the difference in their lives was very simple it was the Holy Spirit coming upon them and so we saw last week when we got to chapter 6 that as the Lord had ascended back into heaven that the church was exploding and as it was exploding and growing that there were different people with different motives coming into the church we contrasted two weeks ago Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira Remember, Barnabas came, and because of what the Lord had done for him, he just wanted to give his whole life to the Lord. Lord, everything I have belongs to you. And he wanted to give it all to him. And you know what? He did it with a sincere heart. But because of his sincere heart, there were some people that looked at him. And so Ananias and Sapphira said, wow, look at all the people looking at Barnabas. We want everyone to look at us, so let's go and give. And they didn't really give with their their whole heart, and they really held back, and they were being hypocrites. And what did the Lord do to Ananias and Sapphira? Who remembers? They smoked him. They dropped and fell over dead. I think that nobody was, I think people were taking giving in a little more serious light after being at that church service. Two people come forward and pretend to give it all, and then they find out that they haven't given it, and they fall over dead, and they drag them out and bury them. People start going, whoa, wait a minute. I'm going to make sure I give with the right heart and with the right motive and with the right attitude. And so we saw that with Ananias and Sapphira, but we saw that the church continued to grow, and as it did, it was too much for the apostles to be able to minister to all that were coming. And so they looked in the Word of God, they used it as an example. According to Exodus 18, the story of Jethro and Moses, they were called by God to raise up what are now known as deacons, waiters of tables, guys who were willing to serve that the apostles might devote themselves to prayer and the Word. If these guys weren't setting up chairs and ministering to the widows, then those who were called to study the Bible and to teach the Bible wouldn't have the ability to do so. And each of these is equally important in the kingdom of God. But what I want you to see here is that he called, they called several men, and one of them is the man we're going to look at this morning. His, it's a man by the name of Stephen. Now Stephen comes from the word Stephanos, which means a victor's crown. It's not a crown that's given just freely, like a diadem, which is given because you don't deserve it. But a Stephanos is a, a crown that is received for doing a great work, being faithful, And Stephen was a man of his name, that his name was not by chance. He did earn a victor's crown, and he didn't do it because he was so great, but because he was so obedient. 
Because he was a man who didn't care about what men thought, but he was totally focused on what God thought. And we talked last week about this man, Stephen, who we're going to see this morning, is going to exposit scripture like nobody has to this point outside of Jesus Christ to the Jewish religious leaders of the day. But how did Stephen begin? He began waiting tables. Before Stephen became this this man who stood up and, and proclaimed the word of God, he first began by waiting tables. And we'll notice in the kingdom of God often, you'll see that, that God desires that we first come with just a heart to serve Him. Not looking for position, not looking for, again, to be up in front of others as much as, Lord, what do you want me to do? And just being available to be used for His glory. So, how do you begin to have a life that would cause our Savior to to give you a standing ovation? Well, first of all, you have to have the heart of a servant. The Bible says, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be servant of God. Some. Servant of people you really like. Servant of people that are nice to you. No, the Bible says if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. And I want to be honest with you, that's contrary to our flesh, isn't it? Our flesh wants to be served. We determine, again, popularity with the world and our, our, how great we're doing before people by how many people serve us. But God says greatness is not how many people serve us, but how many people we serve. Then in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, it says that he was full of faith and power. So he went from being a man who was a servant to a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to do signs and wonders. And then finally in verse 10 of chapter 6, it said they were unable to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke. So he spoke with, with great power, anointed by the Spirit of the living God. He began with the heart of a servant. And then as he served, God gave him a greater opportunity to be used. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that those who serve as a deacon, God will bless them with boldness. Those who are faithful to serve in the little things, God will bless them and give them opportunities to be used by him as his spokesman. So Stephen was a man with a servant's heart. He was full of faith and power. He did great signs and wonders. And they were unable to resist his words by the, and the spirit by which he spoke. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus was the greatest of all servants and that he laid down his life. He was full of faith and power. He did great signs and wonders. And people were unable to resist his word. And I love the fact that you look at Stephen. And what do you see when you look at Stephen? You see a picture of Jesus. And do you know that the Lord still wants to to do that in our lives today. I know that, and it's not blasphemous to say that, again, we are not God and we never will be. Amen? We are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. But at the same time, God desires that we would live life so sold out for Him that people should be able to see Jesus in us. Amen? And again, only because the Holy Spirit's living in us and we're walking in obedience to Him and we're seeking after holiness and serving Him with our whole heart. So they are going to treat Him just like they treated Jesus. And at the last there, it says they accuse him of blasphemy in the last part of chapter 6. And they accuse him of, of speaking against God and speaking against Moses, speaking against the holy temple, and speaking against the law. And so what we're going to see this morning is Stephen's response to these false accusations. He's going to go from be this man, this man willing to serve tables and now filled with the Spirit of the living God. He's going to stand before the religious leaders of the day and he's boldly going to proclaim God's words. So let's take a look beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 7. Then the high priest said, are these things so? Now what he's asking him is that the accusations against him, which were, have you blasphemed against God and Moses? Have you blasphemed against the temple and against the law? Now it's interesting to me, it doesn't tell us who the high priest is here, but it's only been not that many days since Jesus was put on trial 
And I believe it's the very same high priest, a man by the name of Caiaphas. The same man who brought accusations against Jesus is now going to bring accusations against Stephen. Stephen's in great company. Amen? If you know what? If you're being persecuted for your faith, you're in great company. Because the Bible says that blessed are you when they revile and persecute you for my name's sake, for so they did to the prophets that were before you. And obviously so did they to our Savior. And he said to them, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. So, are you blaspheming the temple? Are you speaking against the law? Are you speaking against Moses? Are you speaking against our faith? And so what does Stephen do? He's going to give them a history lesson from the Old Testament, and he's going to point to Jesus Christ from the Old Testament prophets that these very men honored. And he takes them back to the beginning of the faith, to Father Abraham. And he says, now Abraham, when did God call Abraham? When he was in the temple? Did he call Abraham because he was obedient to the law? No, he called Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now that might not mean much to you, but let me just tell you what Mesopotamia is today. It's modern day Iraq. And it was no better then than it is now. It was then Babylon and then Iraq. And here's the thing that... Abraham was called by God when he was living in a godless place. And aren't you glad that God can move in godless places, those of you who live in Santa Cruz? Amen? God can certainly move here. He can do great and awesome things. And again, God brought us here for a reason, be salt and light to this place. But the reality is that most people in Santa Cruz don't want anything to do with God. But he's still God anyway. Amen? And God called Abraham out of Babylon or out of Mesopotamia, out of what is modern day Iraq, not because he was faithful to the temple. You know what? The temple pointed to Jesus Christ, but God did not need the temple to save people. Amen? Everything in the Old Testament was pointing to the coming Messiah. The answer is Jesus Christ, not the law, not the, not the rules, not the rituals, not the temple. Again, all of it pointed to our Savior. It points to our sinfulness and need of a Savior. But they were holding on to the rules and rituals, and they had missed the Messiah. So he takes him back to Abraham and says, hey, look at Abraham. There was no law. There was no temple, and God called him. And he's going to educate these, quote, religious men of the day. Notice he speaks to them respectfully. He calls them brethren because they're Jews. And he calls them fathers because they're older than him, and he's showing them respect. But look what he says there. The God of glory appeared to our Father. The glory of God is not in a place. The glory had departed from the tabernacle and the temple. You see it back in the Old Testament. But he appeared to him in a city filled with pagan and idol worship. Almighty God showed up. Verse 3. And he said to him, get out of your country and from your, your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Now notice that he calls him out. Abraham is called by God. He's called by God while living in a sinless place. But he's not called to live like the world. Hey, if you've been born again, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. Amen? We're to be here, and we're to love people, and we're to minister to people. We're not to go live up on a mountain somewhere with, you know, a bunch of dark brown robes on, chanting to God. That's not what God wants. He saved us to use us for His glory. Amen? And we see here that God called him out, and God said, you know what, I've called you, but I want you to be separate from the world. I want you to come out of that place of pagan and idol worship, and I want you to go to the land that I will show you. It says in Hebrews that he went out not knowing where he was going. I'll tell you what, that's a man of faith, amen? God said go, and he said, okay. He didn't know where he was going. He just went. 
And so often I, I have to confess that I can be a faithless man, that I want to know step 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13 before I take step 1. So often we say, oh Lord, I, you know, okay Lord, I'll, but what's going to happen next? And the reality is that God just wants us to say, Lord, you're sovereign, you're God, you're faithful, you're in control, and I'm going to step out. It wasn't until they put their foot in the river Jordan that it parted. And so often the Lord wants us to step out. And he called Abraham, and Abraham went out as a man, not knowing where he was going, verse 4 and 5. Then he came out of the land of Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him from this land in which you now dwell, to this land which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to, promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. So Abraham, called by God, responds in, in faithful obedience, and he goes out, and he has no inheritance in this, in this holy place. When he gets there, his salvation wasn't based on a temple, and his salvation wasn't blaze, based on the fact that he was standing in a holy place. His salvation was based upon the fact that he was called by God and responded in obedience. Amen? How is every single one of you saved? By realizing you're a sinner, the Holy Spirit calling you to salvation, and you responding in obedience. It's not the rituals you keep. It's not the, the, how you read your Bible. We need to read the Word, right? Read the book, don't wait for the movie. I say that every week. We need to read God's Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by Word of God. But, it, but the key is that we need to respond to it. It's not the rules and rituals that we keep. But it's a relationship with God. And Abraham was called out. And even though the possession was going to come to his ancestors, when he first got there, he was saved by faith. He was the father of faith. It was God's grace that saved him. Not the fact that he was involved in a bunch of rituals or he was sitting in a holy place. Verse 6 and 7. But God spoke in this way that the descendants would dwell in the foreign land and they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the, and the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. We see here that Stephen knows the Bible. And Stephen says, hey, not only did he come out, but when he came out, he knew that there was going to be slavery for his people in their future. You know what? Sometimes we think that when we become a Christian, we're going to be on the cruise ship to heaven, and everything's going to be perfect from the moment we prayed the sinner's prayer. Amen. Well, I prayed the prayer, now everything's going to be perfect. And here's the reality, that God desires so often to let us go through difficulty that we might be a testimony to a lost and a dying world. Amen? You know what? Sometimes being healed from an illness is not the greatest testimony, but it's enduring in the midst of it. Amen? It's having it and saying, you know what? God's in control. It's okay. God's faithful. Because, you know what? It's not this body that's, that's everlasting. It's not us that's eternal. And so we see here that he tells them, Abraham, you're going to go out, but by the way, your people are going to be in bondage. And they end up being in bondage for 400 years. But God says they're not going to be in bondage forever. Eventually, there's going to come a point where they're going to be delivered from bondage, and I'm going to bring uh, judgment upon the people who have bound you. Again, I'm going to deliver them out of their bondage. Much as religious hypocrites who, who bind their people with the law and the religious tradition, the yoke of bondage, they too would be judged by God. You know what? Can I encourage you with something? And I know if you've been here more than once, you've heard this. I just want you to know something. The Lord loves you. Amen? And so often we think we've got to do a bunch of great works to earn His love. Can I tell you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? 
He that knows me best loves me most. He knows every wicked, vile, sinful thing I've ever done, and he loves me anyway. That's the God I serve, amen? Now, we are to walk in holiness because when you walk in holiness, it's, a, it's the ultimate act of faith that you trust that God knows what's best for you. This God that loves you so much, does he know what's best for you? I love my children. I would never give my children something that would harm them. Sometimes they think I'm giving them something that would harm them, but I'm not. My heart is, okay, you're nine. I know a little better than you. So, no, you cannot go out in the street and play baseball, okay? Cars will come, you know, you cannot play in the freeway. No, you cannot, you know, climb that 80-foot tree. No, you can't do that. Now, it might seem from the world's perspective that I'm bringing up harm, but I love my kids, and the Lord loves us. And so what happens is that the, the, his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and he doesn't want to pour bondage on you. He doesn't want you to walk around, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, became a Christian, oh, I got, oh, you know, and walk around with the black robe and the wheelbarrow full of rules and hitting yourself in the face with a board every three steps to prove that you're, you know, and, you know, with heaven at the end, oh, but I'm going to heaven when this is over. Our, our God came that we might have life and life more abundant, amen? Didn't he? And he desires, and I'll tell you, I've said it again, no one's happier than me. I'm going to heaven, and so are you if you've given your life to Jesus Christ. And what happens is they put the, the law and bondage upon people, and he said, look, they're going to be bound, but I'm going to deliver them. And you were once bound, but you've been delivered. Amen? If you're a Christian, you're no longer bound. People call me, Pastor Dave, I need you to pray me for deliverance prayer, deliverance from this. Let me tell you right now, if you're a Christian, you've been delivered. Amen? You're no longer bound in anything. The demon of chocolate ain't getting after you. Stop it, okay? The reality is that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And we've been delivered from bondage. And that's what he said about Abraham. But he's looking at these guys. And why is he telling them this story? Of course they know the story. He's telling them because they are binding people. They've got them bound with the law. And they're pouring rules on their back. But his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Verse 8. Then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Now it's interesting that he was circumcised and the law was not yet given. Circumcision is much like baptism today. It's an outward statement of an inward commitment. When we're baptized today, we're letting the whole world know that I belong to Jesus Christ. Amen? I used to be dead in my trespasses and sins, but now I'm a new creation in Christ. It's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. I want to encourage you, if you've given your life to the Lord and you haven't been baptized, you don't have to be baptized to be saved, because that would almost equate to a work. But we, sh- we do need to be baptized to walk in obedience to the Lord. Amen? If you're giving life to the Lord, you're going to heaven. Praise God. But baptism is just letting the world know I want to be identified with Him. And that's what Abraham did with circumcision, with circumcising his sons. He was saying, we're being identified with Almighty God. And he points this out to him, saying, the law has not been given and no temple has been built yet. You're saying that I blasphemed the temple, I blasphemed the law. There is no law and there is no temple yet. But Abraham was walking with God because it's not the law that saves us, and it's not the temple that saves us, it's faith in God that saves us. Amen? And so we need to be careful not to let traditions and good works and rituals become and replace faith. Let's move on and look at Joseph. Now we're going to look at at two men that they rejected as deliverers. And Stephen, as you've already already figured out, is not a real shy individual at this point. He's just going to get more and more fired up as we go. 
And I can't go as in-depth in these verses as I'd like, but we're just going to go through them. Let's look at verse 9. And the, the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. So he points back to these patriarchs that these guys are so in love with. They always talk about the patriarchs, and these were men used mightily by God. But our faith is not in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen? Our faith is in Jesus Christ. He's the one that paid the price. Because these guys, like you and I, were knuckleheads and they blew it all the time. You know, the apostles, right? Not the apostles, the apostles were blowing it all the time too. And God has them in the Bible to show us that men have frailties. And we don't put our faith in men, but we put our faith in God. And it says here, his brothers looked at Joseph and they envied him, so they sold him into slavery. But I love the next part, but God was with him. You know what? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? I'd rather be Joseph in a pit with, with the Lord than the brothers standing outside mocking him without him. Amen? I'd rather be a slave and have the Lord with me than be living in a mansion apart from God. And Joseph was sold into slavery. They were moved with envy. And again, they betrayed him. Now Joseph, I want you to see this as we go through as a picture of Christ. Because he was rejected by his brothers. They were moved by envy. They sold him for pieces of silver. He was punished for sins he didn't commit. Remember Potiphar's wife? She falsely accused him and he was thrown into prison. He was cast into prison. He arose out of prison just as Jesus arose from the dead. They rejected Joseph and famine came and they rejected Jesus and trouble came. And he's pointing them back to say, Joseph came, he was God's man and you rejected him. Let's keep on in verse 10. And it says there, and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and all our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. When did they finally recognize Joseph for who he was? The second time he came. We're going to get to Moses in a minute. When does Moses become the deliverer? When do they accept him as their deliverer? The second time he comes. When will the Jews finally recognize Jesus as the Messiah? The second time He comes. Nothing is in the Bible by chance. Amen? All the Old Testament pictures point to our New Testament Savior, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. So they recognized Him the second time. They had need. First time they, re they rejected Him. They threw Him into a pit. But when they saw Him again, they repented and rejoiced with Him. And so too it will happen with our Savior and with the Jews. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob, verse 14, and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham brought for a sum of money, bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. So we see here that he points him back to Joseph. And he says, our fathers reject, rejected Joseph, even though Joseph was God's man. Let's take a look at Moses now. Verse 17. But when the time of promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, then the people 
grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. Now, you want to talk about growth? It says when Joseph was there, how many people does it say were, in, were Israelites? How many? Seventy-five. When we get to the time of Moses, you know how many people are Israelites now? Two million. To say they multiply would be an understatement. Okay? But at this point, all that time, they, they, had, they had spent the last 400 years of which in heavy-duty bondage. And we see here that God had sworn to Abraham that they would grow and they would multiply, and they had, because God is always faithful to His Word. Now there rose another king who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Those of you who remember the story of Moses, the, the, the uh, midwives were to take the newborn Israelite babies and cast them into the river. They were to kill them. They were to throw them into the river to let them drown. Now with Moses, we're going to see that his parents are going to protect him and put him into an ark, and he's going to be delivered into, the, into Pharaoh's house. But I want you to see something really clearly, that the treachery of men can never stop the will of God. Amen? They can put out any kind of edict they want. We're indestructible until God is through with us. Amen? And so we see here that the commandment is made that all the babies are to be killed. Where else do you see that? Time of who? Jesus. Remember when Jesus was born, that Herod, hearing that the Messiah had been born, said, kill all the babies aged two and younger, and the Lord, again, God delivered the Savior. Verse 20. At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So we see God's sovereignty that this son of a slave went into the house of Pharaoh. And all of this was preparation for Moses' calling. From before his birth, God had a plan for Moses. And let me tell you something. Before your birth, God had a plan for you. Is that heavy to think about that or what? No, not me. Oh, yeah, you. He loves you so much, he'd rather die than live without you. And he has a plan for your life. He wants to use you. Isn't that awesome? Trying to figure out what life's all about. God loves you. He has a plan for your life, just like he did for Moses. Now, Moses was next in line for reigning in the kingdom. And he was a man of wisdom. And he was a mighty man. But look at verse 23. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. So at age 40, 40 years of Moses becoming a somebody. And now... He's a somebody. He's next in line to Pharaoh. He's a man with great position and authority in Egypt. And now he goes in and he wants to deliver his brethren. And he's a man of wisdom. And he's a man of intellect. And he's a man of power. And he's a man of wealth. And look what it says there. It says there that they did not understand. He thought, I'm going to go down there and deliver my people right now. I'm ready. Here I go. And he goes down there in his own ability and it comes to nothing. He goes down there with his wealth and with his position and with his own world, worldly wisdom, and it comes to nothing. 
So look what God has to do with this man Moses. And the next day, verse 26, he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? So he had seeks to liberate them, then he seeks to reconcile them. You know what? Who is it that did that for us? It's Jesus Christ who liberated us from sin and reconciled sinful man back to holy God. Moses, again, a type or a picture of the Savior. Verse 27. But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Who do you think you are, Moses? We don't care if you're the Pharaoh's son. Who made you judge over us? Who else was questioned very much in the same way? The Savior. Again, you see Moses being a picture of the Lord. Why is Stephen giving this message to the religious leaders? He's pointing out that Israel keeps missing their deliverers. They missed Joseph, and they missed Moses, but more importantly, they missed Jesus. And that's what he's pointing them to. You guys say, I'm against Moses. I'm telling you, you guys miss Moses. That Israel didn't have a clue who he was. And that only by the grace of God were you delivered anyway. So they rejected Moses just as later they would reject Jesus. They said, away from us. There's nothing you can do for us. Just as later they would say of Jesus, away with him. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Verse 28. Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. So Moses is rejected by the Jewish people And he goes out and he dwells with the Gentiles and he has a Gentile bride. Jesus was rejected by the Jews. He went out and ministered to the Gentiles and raised up for himself a Gentile bride. Nothing happens by chance in God's word. Amen? Moses, a picture of Jesus Christ. The Gentile bride that the Lord has today is the church and we're all a part of it. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of a fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Now, it took 40 years for Moses to become somebody, and it took 40 more years, 40 years in the palace for Moses to become a somebody, but it took 40 years in the wilderness for Moses to become a nobody. Amen? And he went in as a somebody in his own abilities, and it came to naught. Delivered no one. But now he's going to go back, led by the Spirit of the living God, empowered by Almighty God, humbly as a nobody, and God's going to use him mightily. May that be a lesson to us. Amen? God doesn't want us to do ministry because we're so talented. As Christians, I hear people say, if so-and-so would just get saved, just think how mightily God could use them. Like we need someone's perfect voice or whatever. Oh, if so-and-so would get saved. Here's the reality. God can use a rock if he wants to. Amen? He used Balaam's donkey. Amen? If he can use a donkey, he can use me. Praise God. And so the reality is that you see here that God's not looking for ability. He's looking for brokenness. And Moses has to go out 40 years in the wilderness, become broken, and get to the point where he is a nobody, and now God can use him. When he comes in in his flesh, and I'm I'm next in line to be Pharaoh, check out my gold-looking hat here thing, and I've got stuff on me and bracelets that cost more than your house, and here I am, and I'm going to deliver you. They said, go away. Why? Because he came in the power of his flesh, and it came to nothing. But Moses coming now as a nobody, a shepherd out in the wilderness, 
who God spoke to, who he responded to in obedience, that's a man that God can use. Lord appeared to Moses and he told him his name, I am that I am. Verse 31. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. He drew near to observe the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. That's a humble man. Not a proud man, not a fleshly man, but a broken man. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard the groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. I love this because it's not just God's man, but it's God's man and God's time. Amen? Moses was God's man, but God had more work He wanted to do in Moses' heart and more that He wanted to do in the Egyptians who were caught up, in, or the, the uh, Israelites who were in Egyptian bondage. He wanted to bring them to the end of themselves where they were crying out to Him, and He wanted to bring Moses to the place where Moses realized that He was nobody and could not do it apart from the help of Almighty God. Amen? So He brings Moses to Himself a place of humility, and He brings the Israelites to a place of crying out for him, and that's when God sent Moses to the people of Israel. Again, 40 years becoming somebody, 40 years in the wilderness becoming a nobody, 40 in the Bible is a number of what? Testing. It's when God, you know, 40 days and 40 nights of rain, you know, Jesus 40 40 days uh, being tempted by the enemy. So when you see 40 in the Bible, just remember, that's a number of testing. So he was tested. Verse 35. Then Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and deliver by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Do you think these guys are starting to get where he's headed? Moses, whom they rejected, was the one God sent. They had just crucified the Savior. Jesus had just been risen from the dead. And he's pointing to the fact, just like they missed it, you guys have missed it too. Moses, whom they have rejected, is the one that God had sent. Not only did they reject uh, Joseph and, and not recognize him, but they rejected Moses and didn't recognize him until his second coming. The nation accepted him. God used him to set them free. Israel rejected Jesus the first time he came. But when he comes again, they will recognize him. It says this in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David, that's the Jews, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Verse 36. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness, 40 years. Moses, a type of Christ, delivered them from Egyptian bondage. The, how did they get delivered? Remember, the blood had to be applied. Remember that, right? Passover. Unless the blood of the Lamb was applied to the door in the shape of the cross, they could not be delivered. Then they went through the Red Sea, and I don't have time to go into it, but the Red Sea, I believe, is a type or a picture of baptism. Look at verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. 
This is he who was in the congregation and in their wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles given to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. He said, you're accusing me of not following the law? You guys say, these are your fathers, and what did you guys do with the law in the wilderness? And again, real quickly, what happened? Moses went to Mount Sinai, and what did the people start to say? Where did he go? He's not coming back. Brought us out here. We had leeks and onions back in Egypt. And then they called the assistant pastor in, Aaron, and said, dude, make us a golden calf. And so Aaron goes, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Great assistant pastor, by the way. So he he makes a golden calf, and they start worshiping the golden calf. Moses comes back down from Mount Sinai. He's not happy. If I go to India and I come back and you guys are worshiping a golden calf, I'm not going to be happy. Okay? Moses comes back down, the worshipment of golden calf, he's not having it. And he's saying, you say that you're followers of the, of the children of Israel, and how did they respond to the law? You're saying, I rejected the law? You guys rejected it. When it was delivered to you, you turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what, what has become of him. And they made a cap in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. They again broke the first and second commandment. Shall no other God before me shall serve no graven image. We're almost done. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Do you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Rephim. Images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away to Babylon. So not only did they, they revert to idol worship of the Egyptians, but then they began to worship the host of heaven. Astrology. Molech, again, not a lot of time to do this, but Molech was the god of success and the god of pleasure. And what they would do was, it was a five foot tall god that they heated up. It had a hole in its stomach and they would put fire in its stomach and the god would become incandescent because it was so hot. And then they would take their newborn babies and they would set them into the hands of this incandescent metal god and they would fry to death. That was Molech. Why did they do it? Because they were saying, we want to be successful and we want to have pleasure in our future. You know what? It sounds heavy duty grievous because it is, but you know what? We're not doing anything different today. We call it abortion. We burn our babies inside the mother's womb and we do it because we don't want it to inconvenience our career. We do it at the God of success. I want to be successful. I won't be able to take as many trips. I won't be able to advance my career. So this baby's an inconvenience. Offer it to the God Molech because of pleasure as a form of birth control. And so we see here that nothing new is under the sun. And he says, guys, you've turned back to Egypt. You say that I've missed the law. You've missed the law. Israel is a, a way far away from the, from the God that they should be serving. Raphim was the God of uh, Saturn. They worshiped Saturn. Where, I don't get that. Look at the sky and go, ooh, worship. Worship the creator, not the creation. Amen? That's what the Bible says. We don't need to be hugging any trees, amen? I know we live in tree-hugger country, but we don't need to be hugging no trees, all right? Now, we need to hug the one who went and died on a tree for us, amen? We don't need to be hugging no trees, man, stop it. Okay, verse 44. 
Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Remember the tabernacle. Those of you guys who were here during the book of Exodus, the tabernacle, I encourage you, get the tapes, because the tabernacle is the most perfect picture of Christ you've ever seen. Which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, who God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? He's saying, you're saying I'm defiling the temple and I speak against the temple. I'm telling you, it's not about the temple. And as you can see, if you go to our church, it's not about the building you meet in either. Amen? It's not about the stained glass windows that we don't have or the the plush velvet covered pews that aren't in here. Amen? But so often people get caught up in the beauty of a building instead of looking for the Savior. And that's what the Jews had done. The temple had become the focal point instead of the Savior that the temple was pointing to. And we need to make sure we don't get in love with the church, but we be in love with Jesus. Amen? We're not in love with a building or an organization, but we're in love with our Savior. And he's saying, that's the true tabernacle. You're accusing me of blaspheming the tabernacle, but what I'm telling you is you've missed the Savior. Last few verses, and it gets real hot here. Take a look. Now, I wish he'd be a little more straightforward. Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Well, Stephen, tell me how you really feel. (laughs) He just looks at him and says, you guys are a bunch of stiff-necked, holier than... And you know what's amazing to me? The only time you see righteous anger in the Bible, for the most part, is when people are pretending to follow God and they're really self-righteous, religious hypocrites. Remember Jesus turning over tables? When did he do it? Turned his father's house to a den of thieves. These guys were walking around with the black robes and trying to pour, you know, and he says, you guys are stiff-necked, man. You guys are, it's all about you. You guys don't get it. And we're going to see that Stephen's bold and Stephen's faithful, but the results from the world's perspective are not going to be good. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom now you have become the betrayers and murderers. He's talking to the religious leaders of the day, and Stephen says, you guys are a bunch of murderers. You're just like your dogs, the fathers that you say that you belong to. Which of the prophets didn't they persecute? And they killed the ones that pointed to the coming Messiah. Isaiah was sawn in two for pointing to the Messiah. Zechariah was killed. Jeremiah was stoned to death because they were the ones that were talking about the coming Messiah. So every time someone talks about the Messiah, you kill them. He said, you guys are stiff-necked. You guys don't get it. Who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. You have not, you're telling me I haven't kept the law? You've missed not only the law, but the Messiah that the law pointed to. Now how does it end for Stephen? He revealed to them they were sinners in need of a Savior. They have an opportunity now to repent of their sin. He's given them an eloquent speech saying, they rejected Joseph, they rejected Moses, and now you've rejected Jesus. All the deliverers that were sent you pushed him away because you wanted to be God of your own life. You wanted to be on the throne. You wanted to be in authority. Before there can be salvation in my life, I've got to die to my will. Amen? 
can't be about me, it's got to be about him. Amen? Now how does it end with Stephen? Let's look here. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Rather than repent, these religious leaders, like their ancestors, wanted to silence the truth. No different in the world today. Can you imagine how much money is being spent trying to get Ten Commandments out of schools and trying to get crosses off of buildings? And Why do people spend so much time and effort and money to do that? Because they don't want to be convicted by it. Rather than repent, they want to silence the truth. We can teach that lightning hit a puddle and your great-great-grandmother was a monkey, but we can't tell people about a loving God who created you in His image. Amen? A science that is totally fallen apart, fouled, and it can't work, impossible, and they teach it to our kids as a fact, but don't you dare pray in school. Don't talk about God. Why? Because they want to silence the truth. There's nothing new under the sun. They wanted to silence the truth. But I love this part, and this is where I got the title for the message, A Standing Ovation from the Lord. Stephen had a servant's heart. Stephen was a man who, moved by the Holy Spirit, was faithful and obedient. And look what happens when he looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus. Because the Bible says that Jesus is what at the right hand of the Father? Seated. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. But Stephen, whose life is about to be taken, he looks up into heaven and what does he see? The Lord's what? He's standing to receive Stephen. A standing ovation from Almighty God. Not popular with men, but a standing ovation from God. Does it get any better than that? Can you imagine that you could somehow do anything that, would, that God would be applauding you? He's done all the work for us. But when we walk obedience to Him, it blesses Him. And here's Stephen. He looks up and he sees the Father, the God of glory. It's interesting that, that it says there, that he saw the glory of God. He started his message by talking about the God of glory, and he ends it by seeing the glory of God. And he said, look, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. You know who this is? Who is this? The Apostle Paul. And I believe this has a profound impact on him. That he's been hearing this testimony. And we know that he'll be a persecutor of Christians. But we also know that eventually the word that was spoken and then Jesus appearing to him on the road is not going to return void. And then it says, here another picture of Christ. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, not, Lord do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The religious leaders were seeking to rid themselves of this man whose words they could not refute. But Stephen, with an eternal focus, didn't care. He just said, Lord, receive my spirit. And they said, don't charge him with this. Who does that sound like? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know what? Why did Stephen get a standing ovation from the creator of the universe? Because he had one focus, serving, loving, and honoring God. He didn't care about being famous. He didn't care about what men thought. He said, you want me to wait tables? I'll wait tables, Lord. Lord, you want to use me more than that? You want me to stand up and proclaim your truth? I'll do it. Lord, you want whatever you say, Lord. And you know what? The eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, seeking one he can show himself strong on account of, one whose heart is loyal to him. You know what? God is looking for a man or a woman 
Not a method or a message. He's looking for a man or a woman who's willing to just stand up and say, Lord, use me. May we be men and women like Stephen. So Stephen had a servant's heart. He was full of faith and power. He did signs and wonders. Men unable to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke. He focused on being faithful before God, not popular before men. And you know what? Let me just say this, guys, and then we're going to pray and have communion. My heart would be that we'd be more concerned about having God's autograph on our heart than Michael Jordan's autograph on our shoes. Amen? God's autograph on our heart. That's what Stephen had, and that's why he was used so mightily. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for the example of Stephen. And we thank you, Lord, that such a clear picture of how each of these Old Testament prophets, Lord, were pointing to the the Messiah who would come. And we thank you that you have come. Lord, I pray now as we go to this time of communion, that, Lord, each one of our hearts would be softened and prepared to observe this most holy act, Lord, that when you died on the cross, you paid the price for us. But, Lord, before you went to the cross, you gathered with your people and you said, take this body, take this bread, which is my body, which is broken for you. And, Lord, you were broken for us. And, Father, I pray that as we take communion, it would not be a ritual and it would not be common. But, Father, we would do it in remembrance of you. So, Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, real quickly, here at Calvary Chapel, we don't have membership. You show up, you're part of the church. That's how it works. Um, We don't see membership in the Bible, so we don't have it here. So when you come, you're a member. Now, communion is simply this. It is done in remembrance of the cross of Christ. It is for people who have given their life to Jesus Christ. So if you're born again and you're here, communion is for you. The Bible also says, though, we're not to take communion lightly that we need to examine our hearts before the Lord. It should be a time of reflection on the cross and a reflection on our own hearts and examining our own lives. And so what we're going to do in a moment, they're going to start playing some worship music, and just come on up and you take the elements and go back and sit down where you're sitting right now, or you can sit anywhere you want, and you can take it with your spouse or with a friend or whoever you might want to. But the bread is a picture of his body which was broken for us. He died and suffered that we might have eternal life. And then the juice is a representation of his blood which was shed for our sins. And so as we take this communion, let's reflect upon that. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, I do pray, Lord, that at this time of communion that we would truly examine our own hearts. Father God, may you be glorified. We just thank you and we praise you, Lord, and we do this in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.